take your Bibles this morning and let us return uh, to 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 6. We departed there over the Christmas season and we are now returning uh, to complete uh, this letter uh, this month. 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6. And we will read verses 11 through 16. 11 through 16, we'll be here this Lord's Day and next Lord's Day. And this, these, uh, these words here are the final exhortations to, uh, exhortations, there's a series of them here, uh, to Timothy from the Apostle Paul in the close of this letter. Uh, but this morning we are beginning to look at fight the good fight of faith. And let us begin in verse, verse 11. 1 Timothy 6, verse 11. But you, O man of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life to which you were also called and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Verse 13, I urge you, or some of your translations will say, I charge you in the sight of God who gives life to all things. And before Christ Jesus, who witnessed the good confession before Pontius Pilate, that you keep, you keep this commandment without spot and blameless until our Lord Jesus Christ appearing, which he will manifest in his own time. He who is the the blessed and the only potentate, the King of kings, the, the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power. Amen. Our Father, we pray for your blessing upon the reading and the exposition of your word. We pray that your spirit would lead us into truth. Your spirit who has given us your word and has preserved your word and has rested upon your servant Paul to give us these words. So give us understanding. Cause us to see the implications of your word for our lives. Help us to hear, to believe, and rest upon me as I speak. We ask this, Father, in the great name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Again, we're returning, returning to Paul's letter uh, to Timothy. This, this of the uh, the first of the of the pastoral epistles this morning, and as we come to the close of this letter. We have in our passage, in fact, a string of several exhortations from the Apostle Paul to his young representative, Timothy, who was serving there and been sent to Ephesus by the Apostle Paul uh, to confront false teachings and difficulties in the church. Now, if you notice in verse 13, in verse 13, we find this language of charge. Uh, in the New King James Version, uh, your Bibles have the word urge, but the, the all, all the other 
uh, direct translations will translate that charge, which is, I think, is a better understanding of that charge. And so I charge you. And again, we've seen in the pastoral language. And the reason why that's a better uh, translation of that charge, uh, we've seen in the pastoral uh, letters that the Apostle Paul will often use military language. He'll, and, and that's what we have here. He's, he's using military terms like giving orders. And here he's giving Timothy a direct order as an apostle, Jesus Christ. And in verse 13, you see, notice verse 13, verse 13. It's not like an order, a direct command from an apostle, but also he's charged in the presence of God himself. Verse 13, I urge you, I charge you in the sight of God. And so we have in our passage uh, these, this, this final exhortation of Paul to Timothy concerning the difficulties at Ephesus. And we have a series of imperatives or commands that he gives Timothy. It's very interesting. You'll see them. Verse 11, he'll say, flee these things. Pursue righteousness. Verse 12, fight, lay hold. Here are these imperatives. Listen to them. Flee, pursue, fight, lay hold, keep. And we'll see this as we will work our way this Sunday and next Sunday uh, through these commands. But we have a charge. We have a charge here to the man of God. In verse 11, you'll notice this. But you, O man of God. And then he he'll say two things. He'll tell Timothy that as a as a good minister of Jesus Christ, as a man of God, there are things that he is to flee and things that he is to pursue or follow after. Now, this expression, "O man of God," and Calvin by the way says that he he Timothy, uh, Paul is lifting this and applying this expression to Timothy. But Calvin says, because he, he's wanting to, to add weight to what he has to say. And he's reminding Timothy of his responsibility and accountability. Again, the charge highlights this point in verse 13. But, O man of God, uh, that was a title... An expression used uh, that, that Paul is using that he is he's lifted and picked up out of the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, uh, this expression is reserved for men who had a message from God to deliver to the people of God. They were called men of God. We find it given to Moses, Samuel, David, Elijah. Elijah, and there are others. It's rarely used in the New Testament. In fact, twice. It's used here in 1 Timothy 6.11, and it's used in 2 Timothy 3.17. 2 Timothy 3.17. So it's in the pastoral epistles. is the only place we'll find this used in the New Testament. And again, understand the weight of it. It's used in the Old Testament to refer to Men that have been called of God, that have a word from God to deliver to the people of God. And now Paul is applying this 
to Timothy. Now, in 2 Timothy, in 2 Timothy, the point there is that the man of God is the one who has a word from God. Like we consider the Old Testament prophets. He's a man of God who has a word from God to deliver to the people of God. And it becomes clear as you look at that passage in 2 Timothy. And I, I want you to notice this. Turn over there to 2 Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 16, notice how it's used there. In 2 Timothy 3, verse 16, he says, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. And then here it is, verse 17, that the man of God, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. You're beginning to see here that the primary tool, the primary means that the man of God, that the minister of the gospel has at hand and that's been given to him to fight the good fight uh, is to or is the inspired word of God. And so, again, the man of God, the minister is to wage this good warfare, to fight the good fight, to carry out his labors by bringing to the people of God a word from God. And Paul is reminding Timothy in his second epistle that that word that he is to bring to the people of God is found in Scripture. It's found in the Old and New Testament. Again, now do you see that in verse 16 and 17 of 2 Timothy 3, but, as, but as, in, as you move into the fourth chapter, it becomes even more clear. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, in 1, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, where he says this charge again. I charge you, I charge you, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom. Verse 2, what is he to do? Preach the word. What word? The inspired word. The, the Holy Spirit inspired word, the God breathed word. And then he says, be ready in season and out of season, convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. And again, along this same line, we see back going back to first Timothy. We saw earlier when we were in chapter four, first Timothy, chapter four, verse 13. He told Timothy, chapter four, verse 13, till I come. Give attention to reading, reading what? The scripture, the reading to exhortation and to doctrine, to the teaching. And again, this is part of being diligent to present himself approved to God, a, a worker who is who is not to be ashamed, but rightly dividing the word of truth. Second Timothy two fifteen. And so. Timothy. As a delegate, as a representative, as one sent uh, by the Apostle Paul to the church at Ephesus to assist the church and to confront the false teachers and to correct the problems in that congregation. He was a man sent by the Apostle, but ultimately by God with a word from God. And it was that which is found in Scripture. Uh, John Gill commenting on this statement again, O man of God, that we find here. John Gill says this. 
But thou, O man of God, not only by creation, he says, as every man is, nor merely by special grace, as everyone is that is chosen of God, redeemed by Christ, regenerated and sanctified by the spirit, but by his by his peculiar office as an evangelist and minister of the word being qualified for and devoted to and employed in the service of God, end quote. Now, with all that being said of what Timothy was to be and do, especially concerning as this expression that's applied to him as man of God, oh, man of God, coming with a word from God to the people of God, I believe the primary point, not only was he, be, was he to be reminded of his accountability and responsibility, but I believe the primary point of Paul setting this in this letter, that the Ephesian church would hear, and that we here today would read and learn is that Paul is using this expression, listen closely, O man of God, he's using this deliberately by contrasting, contrasting Timothy, a man of God, against the false teachers. The false teachers are false. They're not representatives of God. The false teachers are not men of God, but men in pursuit, as we've already seen concerning their greed and their error. They are men in pursuit of the passing pleasures of this world. You see the difference? And he wants the Ephesians to know this. Timothy's a man of God. The false teachers are not representatives of God. And so he's setting them apart. He's contrasting them. For us, that we might see the difference between what a man of God is to be, what a representative of Christ is to be, in contrast to false teachers. Now, let me make another point here, so that you might not mistake that this passage has very little to say to you as a Christian. Uh, not serving in leadership. You may be looking at this and going, well, Timothy's like, you know, an apostolic representative. He's like a minister of the word. He's like a missionary. He's, he's, he's serving in an official capacity. Okay, so this applies to like preachers of nowadays, of our common, of our time, our, our missionaries. What does this mean for me? This has very little to say to me, you might be thinking. But let's not make that mistake. While this expression is uniquely used of spiritual leadership. And let me just say, he says, oh, man of God, not woman of God, not person of God. It's man of God. We've already seen that in the third chapter concerning the qualifications of leadership in the church. But while this expression is uniquely used of spiritual leadership, let me remind you, at the same time, those leaders are to be an example to the entire flock. Do you remember that? In chapter 4, verse 12, 
Chapter 4, verse 12. Notice what Paul said to Timothy. Let no one despise your youth. But be what? An example. But be an example to believers in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, and in purity. So why its immediate point is to set Timothy apart, to remind him of his responsibility... There is indirectly, as he is to set an example to the entire church, to all the people of God, it applies to us. We're to see the series of commands in this passage as applying to each of us. Collectively, listen, collectively, we are Christ's church. And you may be thinking, well, I'm not a man of God in the sense of that official ministerial capacity but you are part of the people of God the people of God that the man of God is to model to exhort to teach and to set an example for all to follow after so like Timothy we are not listen like Timothy we are not to be like the false teachers You're not to follow after them and you're not to be like them. You're not to follow their example. We are the people of God. We are followers of Christ. The false teachers were men of the world. But Timothy, who we are to be like as we follow after his example, We are to be men and women of God. Do you see what I'm saying? Not like the false teachers. So now, with this charge that he gives to Timothy, and remembering that he's setting the example for all of us to follow after, we're going to see this morning he gives a list. The two imperatives... Of things to flee and things to pursue. And this is good. This is good at this time of the year. As we've entered into a new year, the first Sunday of the year. All of us, we will come to times and places in our homes. Or it could even be in the workplace, our own personal life. Where we catch ourselves at certain seasons in life. Do we not? And we go, we need to reevaluate things. We need to reestablish Things We need to remind ourselves. We, we all have those occasions, right? And we have something like that here. I begin, let's begin by looking at verse 11. And again, here we have the things that, that we are to flee, that Timothy was to flee. But you, O man of God, flee these things. And the opening words, but you... These opening words, again, set Timothy in contrast to the false teachers. But you, Timothy, but you, you man of God, you're to be different and distinct from the false teachers. You, Timothy, and you, people of God, are to be in an entirely different category. Not just a different kind of 
I could say this, not just a different kind of class than the false teachers, a, a different kind altogether, like, like this. They are false, you are true. They are servants of Satan, you're to be servants of God. You are sheep, they are goats, right? You are children of God, they are children of the devil. You see the difference? But you, Christian, you, O man of God, flee, look at verse 11, flee these things. Now again, consider as we are entering into a new year, as God's people, we are all Growing, maturing, and it is good from time to time to take inventory, spiritual inventory, of where things are at in our life. It's, it's good to be reminded of what the standard is and where we are to be, because we will drift, we will forget, Right? The New Testament uses, by the way, this kind of language as households, as families. There are seasons, again, when we need to stop and remind our house as fathers. We will, there'll be seasons where we have to do this. We have to remind. You'll notice that there's been a drift in your home and you have to remind everyone. You have to have a family meeting or during a time of family worship to remind everyone what the standard is for the household. How, as Christians, our faith is to influence our life, our homes, the way that we live, wherever we may be found as God's people. You find that kind of language, for instance, Peter would use it in 1 Peter 1.12. For this reason, I will not be negligent to remind you, to remind you always of these things, though you know and are established in the present, in the, in the, in the present truth. Doesn't that happen to us? We find ourselves hearing something being taught in the life of the church. Or we find it as we're reading the scriptures of something that we know, that we've heard, but we have forgotten. And we've allowed ourselves to drift away from it. And so we're being reminded to realign ourselves, to repent, to return to those things. Again, Jude would write this in Jude 5. But I want to remind you, though you once knew this, he would say. So again, the same principle. So we are to be growing, maturing, reading, knowing the scriptures, hearing the truth taught week after week in the gathered church. And applying these things. And in this case, verse 11 we have this command, this imperative concerning things to flee. Things for us as God's people that we are to turn away from, that we are to run from. We are to, to flee, is his words here. 
So, not just for Timothy, but for all of us. If we're to live in such a way that is pleasing to God, do you realize there are things that as individuals and as households, we have to remind ourselves that there are things that we need to flee from. Things to run away from. Things to avoid. Paul in verse 11 calls it these things. We should sit here and go, what things, Paul? What are you talking about? What are these things that we you're commanding Timothy to flee and that we should flee from? What are these things that we are to run from? Of course, immediately, these things are the course of the of of the ungodliness, uh, ungodly, the, the world, ungodliness of the false teachers. The way of the world. And in the immediate context in this chapter, if you remember, uh, before we broke for Christmas, those two areas that he ended, uh, as we entered into this chapter and, and then where we stopped in verse 10. And it was, it was the, the greed of the false teachers and their doctrinal error. Their heterodoxy. Those things. We are to flee. And you can apply everything else that he's been teaching Timothy. And, and writing to him about. In this, in this book. At verse 3. Look at verse 3 of First Timothy 6. Verse 3. Here are things to flee. If anyone teaches otherwise. And does not consent to wholesome words. Even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. And to the doctrine, to the teaching, which accords with godliness. He is proud, knowing nothing, but is obsessed with disputes, arguments over words from which come envy, strife, reviling, evil suspicions. Verse 5, useless wranglings of men of corrupt minds, destitute of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. And then he says, from such withdraw yourself. So the error, the false teachers, were to flee from it, were to draw away from it. And then in verse 10, in verse 10 of 1 Timothy 6, he talked about their greed. Verse 10, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which, which some have apostatized or strayed from the faith, from the faith and their greediness and pierced themselves with many sorrows. So again, as God's people, we must be committed to learning and growing in the knowledge of the truth. We must take serious the words of the apostle, to take heed to his warning and to the warning all throughout the Bible concerning sin. We must learn that if we are to, as a congregation, as individuals, as families, to live in such a way that's pleasing to God, we must understand that there are things we are to flee, to run away from, to avoid as God's people.
as we study the scriptures, as we learn the things that we are to avoid or flee, as we confess and recite the commandments that speak of the law of God, that defines for us what sin is, as we read the scriptures and and hear, and hear them exposited, taught maybe during the equipping hour or from the pulpit ministry, that we're reminded of these things. In one sense, as we grow and mature in understanding this, it's like a child learning and growing to read. And as they grow in their understanding of, of grammar and of the English language, they can read. And to do that, and to be able to do that, it can eventually protect one who might believe that they're taking a bottle of medicine, but they can't read the label, but they're really about to drink some poison. And so we, as the people of God, we are to know the difference as we study the scriptures, as we learn the truth. It can be helpful knowing when a label says that something is not medicine, but poison, that it's something we don't drink. It's something we avoid. It's something that we flee from rather than take in. Am I making sense? And we are listening to God's word. We're to listen to it with understanding. We must learn and grow an understanding concerning the things that are dangerous and deadly for our souls. And the apostle says, flee them, avoid them, turn away from them because they're destructive. Those are popular words in American evangelicalism. We often will tie that to some form of uh, rigid fundamentalism. But the truth is, it is the fundamental teaching of Scripture. It has to do with the doctrine of perseverance. That there are things to flee and things to pursue. And that's what Paul's teaching here concerning Timothy. And for us. We must know. We must know the things that are dangerous and deadly to our souls. And we must avoid them and flee them. And in this case, listen closely, in this case, it is avoiding false teaching and teachers. That's the immediate context. And there's this great caution concerning the love of money and to avoid the sin of greed that's found here. That's the immediate context. But again, it, it flows through everything that Paul's been teaching here. Now again, the danger. The danger. And let me say this. With the freedom and the liberties of the land in which we live, with liberty and freedoms, there are a lot of dangers. We, we don't have a state church here in the West or in the United States. And with that opens the door to all kinds of of churches and cults and groups rising up among us with their teaching. 
And so we're surrounded by it very much. Our setting looks like the ancient world. And so there's the false teaching and teachers we are to avoid. And in our current setting, many of them are under the umbrella or the disguise of Christianity when it's not Christianity at all. It's heterodox, another faith, another doctrine. But when we know that there are sins to avoid and dangers to flee from, and we do not take the words of the apostles seriously, that is a dangerous place to be. Some people, there's something within them, rather than fleeing from it, they like to skate right up to it, as if they're almost tempting God. It, 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 it's, I think of one of the men in our church, as I was thinking of the danger of this, one of the men in our church likes to trap. He does trapping. Uh, but if you were thought of traps and snares, the big trap that would be very serious for human beings would be like a bear trap, wouldn't it? A bear trap. Can you imagine? You, you knew in the backyard... There was a bear trap that is loaded. It's ready to go. And it's covered up with leaves. And maybe you can see just a little piece of metal hanging up, sticking up right out of the leaves. And you've told your children not to play there. And yet they are running around in the leaves, getting closer to it, believing that they have a distance from it. And not only running around it. But dancing around it as if all is well, as if they're safe. You've been told it's there, but you think you know better. You can walk around the perimeter. You can dance around it safely. But at any moment, there can be a slip and you're done for. That's the danger here. You think there are certain things that you're strong enough to resist that you do not have to flee from. And yet, that's the great danger, that it's destructive and deadly for our souls. So he tells us immediately, where are we to flee from immediately in the text? We're to flee from false teachers, from false teaching, from greed and the love of money. That was the immediate context. But it, it flows from everything that he's been speaking about in this letter. And ultimately, for the child of God, for the people of God, it is to flee from those things that the Scripture calls sin and rebellion to God. Flee these things. Now, I'm not going to leave us just there. There are things we are to flee. There are things we are to flee. But notice again, verse 11, he also tells us if that's the negative, there's a positive side of this. And that is to pursue some of your Bibles have follow there. That makes a very nice outline. Flee, follow. Next verse would be fight. You could see how you could do that, right? And there's even his faith. Yeah, you could just man or preacher that just rolls out. But the only problem is. Is follow while, while it's in the older authorized version. It, it's, it's here. It's, it's just not a strong enough word in our modern English. Maybe it wasn't. Maybe in Elizabethan English, 
follow carry the idea of like pursuing a woman in marriage. Because that's what this word's like. It's pursuing with a goal. Follow just in our modern time doesn't catch that, does it? Or an individual pursuing a degree with the goal and the outcome that they will earn a bachelor's degree, a master's degree, a PhD. They're pursuing it with a certain goal. And so the word pursue here is a good word, a strong word. In our setting, think of uh, think in uh, northern Virginia or in Virginia, think of those hounds pursuing a fox. They're not just following, they're pursuing it. Or a police car pursuing a criminal in a car chase. Something like that. So it's not lightheartedness. It's not with laxness that he's saying, flee these things and then pursue. No, it is with energy, with a goal, with pursuit. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, and gentleness. And that's what he gives us. He gives us six Christian character traits here. Graces of the Christian life with that peak of, of love there, of what we are to pursue. So again, there are things that we are to flee and things we are to pursue. And again, consider this in your life personally as we enter into this new year in the life of the church. Things you are to flee and things you are to pursue. Consider this in the life of your family at home. Things you are to flee, things you are to avoid, and things you are to pursue. Let me run through these six items here to pursue, and then we will wrap things up. And then we'll pick right up here uh, next week concerning fight the good fight. But the first one that he gives us, notice this. The first thing he tells us to pursue is righteousness. Righteousness. Pursue righteousness. That is conduct that's in accordance with God's word. In his law, that which is right. We find this, for instance, in Romans chapter eight, verse four, that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. And this is the language that should be evidenced in the lives of the people of God as something we're pursuing because it's blessed, our Lord would say, blessed in Matthew chapter 5, verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for what? For righteousness. For they shall be filled. Or when it comes to the life of the kingdom, he tells us in Matthew 6, verse 33, our Lord Jesus would would say, but seek first the kingdom of God and his Righteousness and all these things shall be added unto you. And so we're to seek, we're to pursue righteousness. And again, even there, we see the contrast when Jesus is teaching there and Matthew 6, much like what we're seeing in First Timothy, because after he says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, not after, right before that, he says, In chapter 6, verse 32, but after these things, the Gentiles seek. In other words, don't be like the Gentiles. 
the people of God are to pursue the kingdom of God and his righteousness. But don't be like the Gentiles, the pagans. So we have righteousness, the conduct and character that is to align our lives up and walking in the commandments and the truth of God's word is the things we are to pursue. And then closely linked to that, closely linked to that is this second word that he gives us here concerning things that we are to pursue. Not only righteousness, but he says then godliness. Godliness. And, and this has been a term that he's used throughout this letter. Uh, godliness. Uh, concerning Timothy and other Christians, it, it has to do with piety, not pietism, but with piety, living uprightly according to God's word. We find this over in chapter 2, verse 2, chapter 4, verse 7. Godliness. We are to live not as ungodly people, again, in contrast to the false teachers, but as godly people. Godliness. We are to pursue it. The third one he gives us. Notice this. He tells us to pursue faith. Faith. Trusting God. Faith in God. Resting in his promises and the work of Christ. Faith. Our dependence upon God and receiving his promises. And again, this is important in this stream, in this list here, in contrasting with the false teachers. And not only was he to pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, be depending upon God, because there's this, this language that's beginning to unfold now, perseverance. But then he moves to the, the next one here, the fourth one. And what is it? Love. It's word agape. It's, it's love. This is the, the pinnacle, the chief of all Christian virtues, love. And this love, as we saw this morning in the two tables of the law that we confess, or we're reminded in the teaching of Scripture, that the law is wrapped up in how we love our neighbor and how we love God. There's the pursuit of love as godly people. Fifthly, number five, patience or perseverance. There it is. Some of your translations will say perseverance. Again, it's continuing. It's part of this pursuit. It's perseverance and patience and faith. He's, these are things that he's to continue in and strive after. And then lastly, number six, gentleness. Gentleness. The last one here. And it's interesting that he lists gentleness and he'll immediately go into fight. <laughs> fight. Fight the good fight. In verse 12. Again, one of the odd things about the kingdom of God we will labor in the kingdom. We will fight the good fight. We will wage the good warfare with patience and with love and with gentleness and faith. Right? 
and righteousness and godliness. It's a different kind of warfare than what the church and than what the world wages, isn't it? And here it is. Gentleness. Is gentleness for Timothy as a man of God to remember that as a his leadership in the church, and even with more weight to his name, this man of God, this delegate of the apostle, he would be reminded with gentleness he's not to lord it over the people of God, to be heavy-handed with them. Because there's a sense of where he could come that way. I'm man of God, according to Paul. I've been sent by Paul. But he is to come and to teach and to correct with gentleness a meekness about him. It reminds you very much like these, when we read these traits, they are godly because they remind us, they, as we read them, we are immediately reminded of our Lord Jesus Christ, aren't we? And his life. Yes, correction takes place. It can be firm. It can be clear. We see that in our Lord. We see that in Paul. But there's a gentleness and a love standing in that truth. We'll run out of time here this morning, but I want to I want to again point to us that these are areas of pursuing and fleeing that as God's people, as we enter into a new year, that we're reminded of these two areas. We would start with these things that, that as we examine our lives, as we uh, begin to consider areas where we may have drifted in our home life or our devotion life or as the people of God, that we would be reminded of the things that we are to flee from and the things that we are to pursue and follow after as God's people. We'll move to the things that we are to fight the good fight for next week concerning this battle of waging war, perseverance. But we're reminded here of not only the man of God and what he is to set an example, but for our own lives as one that we are to follow after. We're reminded here of our Lord Jesus Christ that in so many of these areas, we find ourselves falling short of what we've been called to be, right? I mean, we're reminded of these things because we drift from these things. We are being exhorted of these things with imperatives because we often do not obey them as we ought to. We find ourselves in sin and not in obedience. To the apostolic word. We're reminded here that the one who has fulfilled these qualities in every way perfectly, the one that's pleased the Father, and the one who's done it alone wasn't Paul and wasn't Timothy, it was our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who, with all righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, and gentleness, walked according to God's ways and will. He's the one we flee to, ultimately, when we find ourselves coming short. The apostle reminded this concerning sinners, if you remember in the opening of this book, in the 15th verse of the first chapter. 
He said, this is a faithful saying worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Sinners like you and like me and like us. People that are laboring as his kingdom people, fleeing and pursuing and yet are in daily and constant need of the Redeemer to save sinners. Sinners, like maybe that you're here this morning, you've never embraced Christ savingly. You've never trusted in Him for eternal life and for your sins to be washed away. There's a good word for you here. And it's Jesus Christ who came into the world to save sinners. Flee to Him. Embrace Him by faith. The one who died on Calvary's cross for sinners. As we come to the the table this morning, we're reminded of these sure promises again. Of his broken body, his shed blood. And the symbol of the bread and the cup. We're reminded that he's given himself for us. And this table, this covenant meal for his people, we eat and drink. And by faith, we're receiving the promises on a weekly basis of what the gospel means. And the promise of the new covenant, that he'll remember our sins no more. That he's washed them away because of his son. Let us pray this morning. Let us prepare our hearts as we come to the table. Let us receive Christ and remember these sure promises. Let us pray. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Covenant Reformed Baptist Church, Warrington, Virginia. If you live in Northern Virginia, please join us for worship this Sunday. For more information, please visit us online at covenantrbc.org.